Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. The term director's cut usually means an edited version of a film or video that represents the director's ideal version. Director's cut is also the name of an online exhibition by the Atlanta Photography Group. Their director, Judith Pishnery, will tell us about this show of artists whose works bring fresh perspectives to traditional genres such as landscape, portrait, abstract, and still life. First, when should we feel good about paying a higher price? Why shop at an indie bookstore when you could just order a book and have it delivered on Amazon? Mason Engel is the writer who set out to answer those questions in a new documentary, The Books Tour. He joins us now via Zoom with Janet Geddes, the founder and owner of Avid Bookshop in Athens. Welcome to City Life. It's awesome to be here. Thank you. What initially inspired you to create a documentary about indie bookstores and their importance, Mason? Well, I suppose it goes back to 2019 when I took a road trip of a completely different kind. I had self-published a novel through Amazon in uh, 2017, and by the time 2019 rolls around, my sales had pretty much plateaued online, and I was looking for a different channel, a different way to promote my work, and I had this idea to travel the country and give away copies of my book to independent bookstores. So I set out on this trip to visit 50 independent bookstores in 50 days. And uh, a few stores in, by the time I got to Kansas, I was starting from Indiana, I was approaching a bookstore called The Raven in Lawrence, Kansas. And as I was approaching the, the shop, in the front window, I saw a little homemade pamphlet, a zine, entitled How to Resist Amazon and Why. And at that point, I looked down at the Amazon-exclusive self-published book, in my hand and it registered 
what I was doing for the first time. I was traveling around and asking booksellers to promote a product that was available only through their direct competitor. And I guess just being so preoccupied with my own career and my own agenda, that hadn't clicked for me. So what really moved me about that experience was, despite my obviously insensitive ask, the booksellers I had talked to up to that point had been incredibly supportive, incredibly kind, and I could just feel their passion. The, the mission of spreading the love of reading was the most important thing for them. So I finished the rest of that trip and I resolved to take a second trip that was not about me or self-promotion, but about uh, investigating this industry and these people. And that's, uh, that's what resulted in the bookstore. The bookstore. Now, you mentioned 2019. Enter the pandemic along with a hurricane. How did that affect your travel around the East Coast? to capture these personal stories from indie book owners? Well, it, it almost ended the trip, of course. We had a, a whole plan laid out in January of 2020. I was to have two camera operators. It was going to be a 30-day trip, and we were going to film at events and, and get all this great B-roll. And then March rolls around, and all of that changes. At first, we thought well, this is, we're just going to have to postpone. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this was the perfect time to take the trip and to tell the story. Because, uh, and Janet, of course, can speak to this much more thoroughly than I can, uh, along with many other small local businesses, independent bookstores were hit hard during this time. And if there was something, even just a small thing that I could do to support their mission, we were determined to make that happen. So we cleared all the logistical hurdles wrapped up uh, like a couple of bubble boys in our car and hit the road. Hmm. Janet, what motivated you to open an Avid Bookshop? There are multiple motivations. I am a lifelong reader and book lover. And like a lot of people who majored in English, I got the message consistently throughout schooling that my options were to be a writer or a professor. And while I am a writer in my other job, it wasn't the primary thing I wanted to do with my life. And it wasn't until I lived in Athens and started to expand my options a little bit that I realized that I didn't have to follow this prescription of what a typical English major does. And it hit me that this pipe dream I had talked about off and on since I was a kid, the pipe dream of opening an independent bookstore of my own, was a really wonderful way of combining all of these aspects of jobs that I really loved but didn't want to do full time. So I could still use this bookstore uh, as a vehicle to help serve students in my area, to be able to use my what I hope would be eventual clout in the Athens world to advocate for people that maybe don't have the same opportunities that I did. So I had this, uh, this idea that, oh my gosh, if I opened my own independent bookstore, um, I not only could serve my Athens community, but I could really use what I learned in undergrad and graduate school. I could use my Athens connections to really foster a love of reading. And at the core of all of that, was this strong desire to 
have people feel more connected with their own inner lives and with each other. And in my opinion, there's nothing better than a book to be able to facilitate those kinds of conversations with yourself and conversations with people, including people that you might not otherwise ever run into if it weren't for a place like a neighborhood bookstore. Yeah. And this aspect of community, this theme of being part of a group of like-minded people who enjoy gathering to read, who enjoy exchanging ideas, this comes through resoundingly throughout the film. You are in Athens. A moment ago, you mentioned Lawrence, Kansas, Mason, both university towns. How did you decide which bookstores you'd visit along your trip? Lois, I, I wish I had a better answer for you on this question, but really with all the, the logistical challenges we were facing, we pretty much went to wherever place, wherever store would would have us. It was based largely on the the stores closest to our planned route. And the route was determined by where I had friends who had open couches and open spare rooms because it was a, a very shoestring sort of operation. But I, I've always been enamored with college towns, mostly because of the reasons that you, you mentioned, just feeling like you're a part of a, a like-minded group with with similar values and the value of education i think is is one of the main through lines that runs inside all of indie bookstores there's something brought out in the film that is fascinating you cite a statistic between 2009 and 2019 there was actually a growth in independent bookstores. And, you know, this goes counter to the whole algorithmic order online convenience and lower cost of books on Amazon. How do you explain that? I think in talking with Ryan Raffaelli, who's who's studied the independent book industry extensively over the years, an associate professor at Harvard Business School. He studies what he calls legacy technology. So a, a Swiss watch, a mechanical watch would be an example of that. And the reemergence or the the strengthening of these sort of technologies, I think with regard to the physical book, has to do with what Janet was talking about. I think it's difficult to connect with your inner self if you're interfacing with something uh, whose identity you're not sure of. And this is a little abstract, but it's, it's how I try to think of it. If you're reading from an e-reader or from a screen, that screen is not the book. It's currently showing you the book, but the, the thing that it is, it is ever-changing. I think as people, we're inherently more trusting of something that is consistent and that is and a book is a book is a book we know when we pick up our favorite novel that the pages will be the same and that we'll be able to hopefully with that anchor i suppose um to find a little bit more in ourselves janet i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this i guess thinking back on that period 
2009, right after a huge economic downturn in the U.S., we actually see the reemergence of indie bookstores, um, which was very heartening to read about. And something that is ironic when I think back on those years, during that time, Borders and Barnes and Noble, do you call those big box stores? Yes, yes, they do. The big box stores in shopping centers, they were the threat. They were the bad guys for the dedicated, intimate, independent booksellers. And yet, when borders folded, suddenly people were saying, oh my goodness, what does this mean for the future of books? Barnes & Noble is still around. I don't know if it's fair to say they're on life support, but it seems like it. And yet here, indie bookstores are still alive and kicking and by some measures doing even better. So what are your thoughts about why you're still here? I think a lot of the reason why Avid Bookshop and other sort of neighborhood-based independently owned bookstores are still here, it does relate actually to the economic fallout of 2008 and 2009. And it's a response to how Amazon got stronger and stronger in the early 2000s and it's showing no signs of slowing. Um, I think for a lot of book lovers, they really love that sense of connection and community that Mason and I both talked about. I think people, of course, are attracted to technology. It's appealing. It is designed to be addictive, and I am not an anti-tech person in the least. But the, the response to that digital distancing that people started to feel, the yearning we had for connection, there's a whole level of conversations that can be had between people who find themselves in the same physical space discussing or even just casually talking about the same thing, in this case, reading. There, of course, in our lives, these interactions we have with people who are really close to us, our close friends, our family, people who are complete strangers we wave hi to. But there's this in-between ground of people who you might not have their personal phone numbers or reach out to them one-on-one, but there's still such a strong sense of community when you walk into an independently owned business of any kind and run into the neighbor that you haven't seen in a few months. And recognize a kid from your child's class. Like there's just this level of nourishment that is really hard to quantify, but it's a definite feeling people have. And I think that is something that people didn't realize they would miss so much until Barnes and Noble and Borders really grew to their outsized impact they began to have on the world. And when Amazon grew and people couldn't quite put their finger on it, but it was only when independent bookstores started to come back in larger numbers and these human beings had the chance to be in a smaller environment. That was when it clicked for so many people that, oh, this is what I've been missing, the sense of connection and community. And so people really will thrive to support that. And I appreciate that so much. And that comes through in the film. In fact, There were a few quotes I loved. I I found myself writing down, pausing the film and writing down different (laughs) remarks. 
One was that a bookstore is a gathering point for a culture of ideas. And the common ground of mankind is in the stories we tell. And then one I especially loved was in a part of the documentary that explained some of the account for the growth in indie sales was largely thanks to young adult and children's books. And one of the booksellers asked a little girl about the words that came to mind when she walked into the store. And the little girl paused and then said it reminded her of a home and a library. Mm. That's my might be my favorite quote of the entire film documentarian and writer Mason Engel with Janet Geddes, the founder and owner of Avid Bookshop in Athens, Georgia. We'll return with more of our conversation and hear why, dreamy as they are, bookstores still must earn a profit. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation with the documentarian and writer Mason Angle and Janet Geddes, the owner of Avid Bookshop in Athens. We're discussing Angle's new film, The Books Tour, and the challenges that face independent bookstores. Here, Geddes talks about Avid Bookshop's initiatives to engage with their community. Yeah, I feel very proud of the programs that we have come up with over the last 10 years of business. My bookstore will have its 10th anniversary this October. One of the things that we do very often is donate books So if a group is having a fundraiser or a silent auction, we will donate a gift bundle. We will often donate uh, boxes of books to local schools, to little free libraries. Uh, One thing that I'm most proud of that we hope to resume in 2022 is something called the Avid in Schools Initiative. And that encompasses multiple things, but one of them is you know, donating time and money. We'll go and speak at a career day. We will, one of my booksellers, Rachel, has gone to schools before and taught kids how to make uh, shelf talkers, which is the term for those little pithy teasers or small book reviews that you see all over the shelves of an independent bookstore. We do all sorts of things. We have field trips come to the bookshop 
so we can show them around the store and talk to them a little bit about how we choose the books on the shelves and help them decide how do you decide what book comes into your classroom or comes into your home. Um, and perhaps the, the largest Avidan Schools initiative program we do is when we bring authors to those local schools without the schools having to pay an honorarium. So to be able to introduce authors and illustrators to kids, some of whom who never quite understood until that moment that there is a human being, if not multiple human beings, behind the creation of that book that they love so much. There's just such magic in that moment. And we have in-store and in-school book fairs where we set up an entire mobile bookshop and a portion of those sales goes to that school. We will host authors in the store. We do a lot of book clubs. So we think as creatively as we can about doing all these events and opportunities for people to interact with us and the booksellers who are experts in books and reading. I feel like the services we offer, they go so far beyond just the sales transaction at the register. There's so much more than that. Mason, the viewer's reaction may be counterintuitive to some of what comes out in the film. From the independent bookstore owners and managers that you feature, is that a number of them say they don't care if people buy or not. Now, this is where I felt like your film left the realm of documentary and entered the genre of love story. Because these booksellers clearly aren't in it for the money, though they need sales to stay open and nurture what they want to give back to the community. But I I was wondering what your reaction was to hearing those people say, I don't care if customers buy or not. Well, the, the business is secondary. They do the things they do, the community engagement, the evangelizing of books and reading, not to make a buck, but because it's who they are. And I think that's so so much more heartening and encouraging buying from people who have a true passion for what they're selling than it is buying from someone looking at P&Ls and, and strategy and, and all these things. Though independent bookstore owners are very business savvy, the business is secondary. They're, they're book evangelists and what they do comes about because of that. So it, I, I wouldn't say I was surprised um, by, by those responses because even before I asked the question about the money and the sales, in their responses, you could just, you could hear the love story aspect. So when we got to that key point of why do you sell books? We talked to people who had been booksellers for 20, 30, 40 years. And when I asked why they kept getting up in the morning and kept being excited to sell books, the answer was never, oh, I I think I'm going to break my sales record for this quarter. It was because maybe today there's someone out there who, if given the right book at the right time, will be changed will be inspired, will be saved. And that's what many booksellers have experienced themselves. I think that's why they're so keen to evangelize these stories because they have been inspired, they have been saved, and they want to share that 
power with with other people. So the the bottom line is really at the bottom of their minds. If I may I push back on that just a little bit, please Lois? do, Janet. This Lois, this is why I love talking to Janet because we never <laughs> it was a dialogue for sure. Yeah. So I I and a lot of other sort of leaders in the independent bookstore industry have been talking a lot about this over the last few years. Like there is this storyline that even I played into for years about how I'm doing it for love and not the money. It is true that I'm doing it for love. It is also true, as you pointed out, Lois, that I need the money and that we aren't able to do any of the good work we do without the money. And so when I heard in the film that Mason let me preview, I did see those booksellers saying, we don't care if you buy. I agree with part of that. And the part that I agree with is I would prefer for you to buy something, but it it isn't important for me to make sure that every human walks through the door, leaves having spent X number of dollars. I don't feel that way. What I find important is to make sure that you have a great experience in my store and that if you are not able or willing to buy anything during that first visit, that next time you need something, you'll come to me because you had such a great experience and you will choose to spend your money with me. But overall, I need the money. And it is fascinating too, the more I learn about the business side of things, a lot of independent booksellers, particularly ones who've been in it for decades longer than I have, the business model has not changed in, I don't know, a hundred years or more. And so we are able to stay open, but just barely. I don't know any independent bookstore that's not one crisis away from potentially having to shut down forever because the margins are so tight if they're there at all. And so I find myself in a position sometimes where I'm trying to ride the line. I don't want to give anyone the impression that we are dying. We're not dying. We're doing okay. But we also could be a lot healthier if the systems that were set up, you know, in terms of how we get books from the publisher and what we have to pay and uh, what the rent is in the spaces that we occupy, like all of that, it makes it really difficult to operate. So I do ride that line of trying to make sure our our true customers, the people who really want us to stick around forevermore, I want them to know a little bit about how difficult it is, but not so much that they're spooked and thinking that we're on the cusp of closing, which we are, we are very much not. I think the onus has been put on the independent business owners and on individual consumers. Like you, these two entities, these two groups of people, it's up to you to save the independent economies where you live. But that di- distracts us from the fact that governments, large and small, are giving billions of dollars in incentives to, to chains, but particularly to Amazon. So the playing field is not level at all. I don't dislike Amazon because they sell books. I dislike them because of their nefarious business practices and the fact that they are given I couldn't even count the number of legs up that they have over us. And so it's just, it's hard to ride that line and to kind of be realistic about business while also making sure that we have the bandwidth and energy to uh, continue providing the programming that we find so important. So the film culminates with Mason talking about the Book Industry Charitable Foundation. And would you tell us what viewers of this film, how they will be helping the Book Industry Charitable Foundation, which goes by the acronym BINK. Yeah, so for BINK, a lot of these stores and a lot of these booksellers are one crisis away from bankruptcy, from going out of business. And BINK 
oftentimes is what stands between booksellers and and that worst case scenario. So if there's an unexpected expense or a natural disaster blows out all the windows in a store, uh, a bookstore could go bust if not for Bink. It's uh, the, the industry's safety net. When we were looking for ways not only to to tell this love story about bookstores, but to to take action of some sort, raising money through our pre-orders and, and donating 100% of those sales to the Book Industry Charitable Foundation was the obvious choice. And we're talking about a modest amount for the film. What do viewers have to pay? Yeah, it's it's just $10 for a digital rental, which you can order at thebookstourfilm.com. Or if you'd like to attend the virtual premiere, it's just $25. So a little bit to watch, hopefully uh, an entertaining film and to support a fantastic cause. Mason, before we go, I have to tell you how much I loved your book-themed shirts. <laughs> Early on, you're wearing one that just, it's darker in color, and it has mm. large images of shelved books. A little later, you're wearing a lighter color one. It's more whimsical. Where mm-hmm. did you find those? Oh, Lois, I scoured the internet for these. I <laughs> I, I got some off of Etsy, um, people who are hand-designing these shirts and printing uh, off of other boutique websites. And then also, uh, you may have noticed I was wearing uh, a shirt for Avid Bookshop about midway through the trip. Janet was kind enough to give me and my camera guy, Brayden, a couple of shirts because uh, by that point in the trip, laundry was starting to become a challenge. So that was <laughs> very, uh, they're very helpful. Documentarian and writer Mason Engel and Avid Bookshop owner Janet Geddes. Angle's new film, The Books Tour, is streaming now, and you can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The term director's cut usually means an edited version of a film or video that's supposed to represent the director's own approved edit. Director's Cut is also the name of an exhibition online now, curated by Judith Pishnery, director of the Atlanta Photography Group. She joins us now via Zoom. Judith, welcome back to City Lights. Lois, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, please tell us more about the title of this show. Director's Cut at the Atlanta Photography Group is really an exciting exhibition. Each year we have a number of juried exhibitions and we do call in 
jurors, which could be museum curators, gallerists, photo editors, corporate art collection curators, and just a variety of people. And they pick some really fantastic work. It's always so beautiful and it's always so wonderful to see what their choices are. But that being said, they leave a lot of really good work that wasn't exhibited. And the Director's Cut exhibition is my chance to go back through all of the submitted work and look through it to the images that were not chosen by the other jurors and make my own selections and create and curate an exhibition with those still extremely fantastic and wonderful works. Mm. I saw that there are some photos on display that date back to the 1970s with images of the late mayor of Atlanta, Maynard Jackson, and the Honorable Andrew Young. Could photographers submit works from any year of their output? Um, yes, for some of our exhibitions, we do have requirements that the work needs to be more recent, maybe in the last five years or 10 years. But then we have the opportunities for some of the artists to submit work across their career. And the artists that participate with the Atlanta Photography Group range from very beginning new photographers. Last year, we had someone that she was chosen for an exhibition, and it was some of the very first photographs that she had made, and she entered them, and they were chosen. And then we have people such as the work you were talking about, which is from Ron Sherman, and Ron Sherman has a 40-year career as a professional photographer. He's photographed a wide variety of, of works, mostly photojournalism and documentary work. Um, and it gives him the opportunity to showcase some of the work from his vast career. And then artists, you know, in between who have been maybe working for a few years to working for many years. So um, it gives a wide variety of artists an opportunity to be able to exhibit their work. Hmm. Some of the photos in this exhibition depict dilapidated buildings and homes, desolate places. The impact is both eerie and peaceful. Were those photos selected as a commentary on our present time? Well, I think that might be part of it. And I think some of that comes into play uh, with those images. It's interesting that the images were created pre-COVID, but a lot of them do relate to uh, where we are at the moment. And I just found them very beautiful, very peaceful, and very engaging and contemplative to be able to look at them. Very much so. Another outstanding set of photos were those by Dale Niles, dreamy montage prints. How would you further describe them? And, and would you talk about how these works were created? Dale is uh, one of our longtime members, and she's a very creative artist. I truly enjoy the variety of work that she creates. And this is a series she has been working on that is composites 
And they're composites from mostly existing or previous photographs. And some of them happen to be from her family. And she put them together to create narratives and stories that didn't really exist, but they're just very fanciful. They're very interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, they speak a lot of kind of the creativity and the people who are in her family and how she could incorporate them into these very sort of fairy tale like composite images. Hmm. The show reveals a wide range of styles, themes, and subjects. Did having this diverse group of works determine who and what would be featured? Well, honestly, what what I do to select the works for this exhibition is I go back through all the work, which is quite a chore, but, um, but I go back through all of the work that was submitted through the exhibitions for the current year. And I just start looking at the the images that I really love. And it's interesting how it comes together and how some of them kind of play upon themes where there's a whole section of images that are people related. Then there's another section that is all landscapes, abstracts, things that are digitally manipulated, um, as well as journalistic and documentary work. And it really speaks to the type of work that our members and the artists within our photographic community work, which is something that I love about photography, how it does span so many different genres and so many different styles and techniques that it's it's just so fascinating to me that people can work from, um, and if you look at the work, um, the gallery is online, but if you look at the work, it's everything from traditional and historical processes through documentary processes and architecture and portraits up to digitally manipulated images, the variety and the vastness of how photography encompasses artwork is really fascinating. Hmm. I read that you are working on some wall events in a variety of locations. Would you tell us about these collaborations and where you hope to display them? We are working with a variety of different organizations to be able to move photography out of our gallery space and into some other communities, places that we have worked in the past, I can speak to. We have done a collaboration with Johns Creek Art Center. We've done a collaboration with um, the Madison Morgan Cultural Center. One of the things that we have done almost every year for about the past 10 years is an exhibition at um, the domestic atrium at the Atlanta airport. That one was on the walls in the atrium. It has currently come down, but it is also available to view the work in our virtual galleries online. Yeah. Speaking of online, Atlanta Photography Group offers some workshops. What can you tell us about those workshops? We do, and and it's part of our mission as a photographic center to provide professional development and educational opportunities. We have a few workshops currently going on. 
And we also have a wonderful slate of things that we are getting ready to announce for 2021. I'm still working on the logistics and the planning, but they, the workshops are open to pretty much anyone in the photo industry. And now that we are doing them online, you can really join in from anywhere from the comfort of your very own home, not traveling to Atlanta or not fighting Atlanta traffic. And our workshop ranges from creative endeavors, such as a current uh, workshop that is called Creative Catalyst, that has a variety of different creative assignments to really get the photographer out of their own box and thinking of photography in different ways and really experimenting with it in a lot of different ways. We also have a portfolio and project development class that's coming up. It is a six month long uh, workshop. We meet once a month and I am the one teaching that workshop and I work with the artist to develop a body of work and a portfolio, really pulling it together so it's cohesive um, and so they can be able to show it in exhibitions. Um, some people are working on books. Some people are working on really just rounding out a project and they need some additional input, which comes from myself as well as the uh, other students in the class. We have technical classes, creative, and some business workshops on the schedule, really just to round out a photographer's professional development. Lots of offerings and very helpful to the aspiring as well as the established photographer. How has the pandemic changed the way photographers display their works? The pandemic really has been quite a bit of a challenge and a change to most of us. While at the Atlanta Photography Group, we have had works on the wall. We really created a much more robust online viewing experience where in the past we didn't quite have all the exhibitions up online and I made it a goal to really get everything up there since we had many more people joining us in our online activities from online openings, juror talks, artist talks, curator talks, as well as the workshops, but really getting the exhibitions online so people could see them, not have to worry about coming out to the gallery, um, especially, you know, if anybody had any concerns about, you know, not being able to social distance. And it has just given everybody, I think, a more, uh, a more robust ability to see the work. There's nothing like seeing photography or any artwork in person, but at least with creating the online virtual galleries were able to share it with a lot more people in a lot more areas and not just in the Atlanta area. They're able to enjoy it from across the country as well as around the world. So when hopefully everyone is vaccinated, will you continue to display photography online? Oh, absolutely. We'll have on-the-wall exhibitions as well as we'll continue with our much more in-depth and robust visual online galleries, which I think is really helpful because we have many artists 
um, who participate with us that are outside the Atlanta area. And they may not come in to see the exhibition and they may not see the other artists work. So it gives them an opportunity to see the works as well as their family, friends, colleagues, and even people who are not necessarily familiar with us and with our artists, they're able to find us online and really enjoy the work as well as all the work online is also available for purchase as well. We've heard about the increasing numbers of those suffering from anxiety and depression. Do you think photography can be a good stress reliever? Oh, absolutely. Um, Pretty much nowadays, although being a professional photographer myself and a professional educator, it's sometimes a challenge for me to say like, well, pretty much anybody with a decent smartphone can take great pictures and they really can. And that really has made photography kind of the art of the people. They're able to do that. And a lot of people use it as reflection, meditation, um, and I even had somebody in one of my classes last year that on her her daily pandemic walks was really just using photography with her smartphone as a stress relief, as, you know, as a meditative moment. And her photographs really revealed that. And I really think people have been doing that as well as then sharing their works across a variety of online platforms from Instagram and Facebook and other social media. And with that, I think people have felt not so alone. They've seen that other people are going through the same things they are. So I really do think it has some therapeutic aspects from everybody being able to make photographs as well as share them and share their experience and not feel that they're the only one going through this. So it's not just self-expression. In this instance, it has also meant connection with others. Absolutely. And, and with, I really do have to thank Zoom for creating a really fabulous platform because I keep thinking about had, had we been going through this even five years ago, we wouldn't have had the same connection when we truly would have been isolated but Zoom has been able to make having online meetings and online events, um, connecting with people across the city or across the country possible. And even though we may not be able to see them in person, we're able to see somebody and we're able to connect with them and, and be able to chat with them and share, share our own experiences. The Atlanta Photography Group Executive Director, Judith Pishnery, is the curator of Director's Cut. The exhibition is on view now in their online gallery. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Shaniqua Gay. I am a world-building multimedia artist, and I engage in this work via installations, paintings, performance, photography, video, and monumental sculptural figures. 
My work is about ritual and memory and storytelling and fantasy. I call upon my ancestors and the shawties of Atlanta. I believe trap music is a form of praise and worship. I am a heavy observer of the motherboard of the AME churches, and I'm interested in the continued work of Black fantasy found in The Wiz, along with the spirit of finding God and self, the way that Celie and Nettie and Sophia and Suge Avery did in The Color Purple. I got started in art on my mother's walls, like literally, no cap. I started from the bottom, now I'm here. <laughs> But from a more formative point of view, um, I was actually challenged by a friend to take my creative gifts seriously, to stop being a hobbyist, if you will, and to live my creative life on purpose. And that path had led me to returning to the Savannah College of Art and Design for my undergraduate, and then on to GSU uh, to get my MFA. And in the midst of that, kind of on and off, I have been pursuing my creative life for the past maybe 14 or 15 years now. I'm really interested in the multitudes and divinity of Black women. I consider myself to be a hostess of this work, and, and being a hostess, you have to um, be one who is allowing any and everything to kind of come in. And I allow myself to ask questions like, how do I combat the absolute spiritual destruction of Black women in this nation? And what does it mean for a nation of people to toil without thanks? And how do I engage in a practice that has a desire to see that no harm comes to people animals, land, nor ocean? What does it mean for me to take up spiritual activism and the work of healing? And I have found that for me, art is the only vehicle to best mend some of these wounds. I am actually from Atlanta. <laughs> I am a Grady baby. My first steps were on Stewart Avenue, what is now known as Metropolitan Avenue. Um, my mother is a country girl from Dallas, Georgia, and my father is a city boy from Atlanta. So, like, I really love where I'm from, and everything about my work is from, you know, the perspective of the life that I have lived and planted here uh, in Atlanta and in Georgia. You know, Atlanta's history of civil and human rights, and it's a city that has continuously strived to be a safe haven for humans. I love the music here and, and all of the feats that Atlanta has scaled, you know, like from the Olympics to the busiest airport in the world to tilting the scale in this past year's election. The way that we have become a hub for hip hop culture because of outcasts, like literally Atlanta influences everything. I believe art is in everything that we do and see. So I look for art in unconventional spaces. So for me, uh, cooking and eating is a kind of art. And so how folks serve one another in excellence is, is really important for me. So like the experience at Umi restaurant over in Buckhead, to me, that's an art form. But from a more fine art perspective, I look for art, you know, at Jackson Fine Art Gallery. They are absolutely exquisite. Spelman Museum has always had dynamic exhibitions and um, they are the best in, in the city in my opinion. And of course the High Museum has also excellent exhibitions. 
My work can currently be seen at the Atlanta Contemporary. The Atlanta Biennial is currently happening over there and will be closing out this month, so please catch up. My work can also be seen at Chapel Hill, North Carolina for a few more days at the Ackland Museum. I have an exhibition there called Holding Space for Nobility, a memorial for Breonna Taylor. I'm preparing for a solo exhibition at Syracuse University in September, a collector's show here in Atlanta in November, a group exhibition in Montreal, Canada, and I will be working alongside a curatorial fellow, Theo Tyson, at the Boston Athenaeum uh, for an exhibition slated for next year. That was Shanique Bourget on City Light series, Speaking of the Arts. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Kota Izawa steals the show with his new exhibition, The Crime of Art. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. Special thanks to Kevin Rinker. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and I would so love it if you would follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.